guys, welcome back to Who Knew We Didn't. My name is Marta and my partner in podcast here is Megan. And we also have two more partners in podcast today, uh, Rebecca and Fetty. Can you guys tell me a little bit about yourselves and what you do? Hi, my name's Rebecca. I am the founder and program manager of Endless Abilities. Uh, we offer behavioral therapy and parent coaching for children with autism and multi-diagnoses. And uh, I'm Fatty. I'm one of the co-founders and the BCBA on the team. And uh, I mainly will work one-on-one -on -one with the kids and supervise all the uh, therapists who uh, will also work one-on-one -on -one with the kids. Perfect. Thank you. So, uh, so that's all four of us here at the table today. If you guys, if it's your first time tuning in, just so you know, we're a psychology podcast. We talk about things in psychology and how they affect your daily lives. If you haven't picked up on it already, we're talking about uh, behavioral therapy today and specifically within the autism spectrum. And with our first question, Megan's going to kick us off. Well, I think just to get started, we really wanted to uh, share with listeners more about you and what you do, what your story is, how you got into this line of work, how you came to uh, open up Endless Ability. So take it away. Tell us about yourselves. Okay. So um, whew, I've been working in this field since I was 15. Uh, my uncle actually has Down syndrome, so I was very intrigued um, with him and kind of the way how he was very different from others. Uh, so I started doing summer camps when I was 15, um, and it was specifically for, um, I worked with actually all ages, so children and adults uh, with developmental disabilities. Worked a lot with behavioral, some medically fragile um, that were very dependent. Um, so yeah, I started doing that, and then I went in to become an educational support worker in schools. Uh, which I enjoyed, but I felt like I wanted to do more. Uh, I wanted to make a, a bigger impact. So I, I fell into healthcare. I'm, I'm a huge, I love helping people. Um, so anyways, I fell into healthcare. I started in, in long-term care uh, and I was just doing administration and I was around a lot of people. Um, of course, a big population of dementia where I was seeing a lot of different behaviors that I was never really exposed to before. And I was still working uh, part-time with kids with autism with uh, the city doing with the city of Brampton doing the one-on-one -on -one integration and stuff like that and then I had my own private respite clients um, so I wanted to do more so I went into the course uh, taking behavioral sciences at Humber thinking I would learn more about the behaviors with dementia and it really touched on mental health and a lot of the case studies and discussions were around autism and it really clicked to me because I was working uh, in the field for so long. Uh, so that's when I went in to learn more about ABA and I was never exposed to ABA. I was so used to doing, you know, support work, um, relieving parents and stuff like that so that they can get a little bit of a break and getting to know these kids. And yeah, I just, I started doing ABA and I saw how effective it was and that's when I uh, went full throttle into it and I stopped doing all the other million jobs and I went full time into behavioral therapy. Can you just remind me what does ABA stand for? Applied Behavioral Analysis. Thanks. <laughs> yes, sorry about that. So uh, it is a type of therapy that we uh, that I'm currently practicing with kids with autism and anyways I started I had a lot of inquiries for private uh, private work but as a behavioral therapist you cannot do any ABA therapy or IBI. IBI stands for Intensive Behavior Intervention, which we'll, we'll get into later, um, without having a super 
basically a supervisor, which is your BCBA, your board certified behavioral analyst. Um, and I worked with Fatty in a, a center and an in-home company. And it's kind of funny because we kind of didn't really click at first. Yeah, we did. <laughs> um, and then I kind of, I thought, you know what, I really liked working with him because I had worked with him before. He was, a, he was an instructor therapist as well as I was. And I never had him as my BCBA. And when I started with him, I loved his work. And we worked so well together. And families just, like, were raving about us. So that's where I, I thought, okay, you know what? I had my own side business that I was starting. And I thought I could just grow it into something so much bigger. I was doing one-on-one tutoring and respite. And that's where we developed Endless Abilities and started to work together. Yeah. So you guys get along better now, though, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> yes. So a little bit about me. I kind of got into the field by accident. So I studied psychology, and uh, I wanted to. I knew I wanted to help, but in my mind, I was like, I was going to go out and work in addiction. So I applied for many jobs, and I didn't get anything, and I finally ended up in behave, like in a behavior field. As soon as I started my first day, I just fell in love with it, worked with kids with autism, and I just knew that moment that that's what I was going to do. And I have to say that's crazy going into the field thinking you were going to be working in addictions and then like how did that transition come up? Well, I spent time looking for work and I couldn't find it, right? So I I wanted to get my foot in the door, so I found a job. I went in. And it was just it's exactly what I wanted to do. So as a kid, I was very behavioral. So going into that and seeing all these behavioral challenges and starting to really understand why I potentially could have been doing the things I did and seeing a lot of uh, just overlap. And I'm like, okay, this is very interesting. So I made a, like, I realized this is what I'm going to do from now on. This is my, this is my field. So I decided I was going to go do my master's and I, uh, went, did my master's, did my clinical hours, got my BCBA and I, this is, this is it for me. This is what I want to do. But when I first started, I worked with a lot of uh, very aggressive individuals. And that's what really intrigued me. And that's what I continued to kind of focus on when I was doing my master's. Uh, because I find it very interesting to why an individual who loves the person that they're attacking is doing that. Uh, so we know that every single individual, when any behavior that we do, so me drinking my water, there is a functioning to, there's a function to that. There's a function to every single little thing we do. And when you study behavior science, you get to really understand humans in general. You see that every little movement has a reason. And that, that's what really fascinates me. No, I'm just not going to move at all. I know, that's <laughs> what I'm thinking too. Just like, oh, okay, I've been hanging out with you guys for half an hour. How many little things have you picked up about me just by the like small things I've done? Well, I, I wouldn't say like that, but, <laughs> but no, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of really cool things that you can uh, kind of understand about others, uh, other people's behaviors. And, and uh, yeah, to me, that's what really captivated me and made me want to do this for the rest of my life. And then, yeah, you guys kind of got together through through your you supervise. Yeah. So basically, I had I had started my own. Uh, I was a what's it called it's self proprietorship. I started my own website. I um, I started offering what I could offer, and then that's when I was like, okay, fatty, like. I can use, like, not I can use you now, but let's, but let's, let's do get this. together. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. And we re- really didn't think that it would, um, we didn't think that it would lift off as quickly as it did, to be honest. Um, how many families, uh, is it strictly families or individual work that you do um, as well? Like, how many 
Uh, How many client, yeah. clients, I guess you could say we have? We've got, uh, we're at 20 at least now and we're just, we just keep growing. We have a wait list going. Is it all um, within the GTA? Yeah. Yeah. So we service, um, you know, mostly Brampton, Mississauga, Caledon, um, some Milton clients, uh, some Toronto, but we like to, we like to keep it a little bit closer to Brampton and Mississauga. So now that we know a little bit more about both of you and a little bit more about Endless Abilities, can you tell us just sort of generally, how would you describe autism? How would you define autism since that's um, going to be the main focus of our conversation for today? Yeah, so autism is a spectrum disorder. And uh, previously it used to have three characteristics, but recently it's been changed and there's two main characteristics. So there's social uh, communication and there's repetitive behavior. So kids with autism have a a lot of deficits in their social skills and their communication. So you'll notice that uh, at times they have a, they'll have a hard time being around others and knowing how to pick up on their cues. So theory of mind is really, uh, uh, is really low for kids with autism. So that's something that ABA will work on. I have to interrupt. Theory yes. of mind. So that's an interesting phrase. Did it ring a bell for you? Sort of. Can you... Can you you learn it in like psych 101 and developmental um, psychology. Can uh, you typically. extrapolate on that? Yeah, so theory of mind is pretty much the understanding of other people. So picking up on other people's emotions, feelings, and understanding that you yourself don't have the same emotions and feelings as other people. Uh, and uh, so, for example, you'll see a kid with autism who gets really sensitive when you touch him, but will come and touch you in different places and not realizing that you'll feel the same thing that they're feeling. Uh, so that's theory of mind, the understanding that others have different feelings than you and you have similar feelings to them. Uh, so that's a deficit in autism in itself. Uh, and repetitive behavior, you'll notice a lot of, kid just, a lot of kids uh, just uh, line toys up. Uh, they'll, when they want to go outside, they'll maybe step with their right foot. Uh, or they, if they want to do work, they always have to do it in the exact same order or else it's going to be a little bit... Uh, you know, stressful or troubling for them. So we have to be really careful. And that's not a bad thing. It's, it's everyone, everyone is different. And that's the way I see it. Mm -hmm. uh, we just have to know that and understand that when it comes to them so that we can uh, use those skills that they have to their advantage. Even you just uh, outlining, you know, like repetitive behavior and they don't have theory of mind in the same way that um, non-autism spectrum people do, like, even just that helps outline what autism is for me, like in a much more clear way than my understanding was of it before. Cause yeah. like I think of autism and I know that there's like, um, you know, having trouble understanding what other people are feeling or like having trouble reading social situations. But like my understanding of it was just like a chaotic, chaotic bundle of behaviors that I associated with autism. So just knowing that they like stem from these two characteristics is, Enlightening. Helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot, here's the thing. So a lot of people just see it and they don't really understand that it's, uh, there's so many little things happening when they're there. Uh, they're, I've met some of the most amazing individuals, probably the brightest people that I've met have been on the spectrum. It's just their, their brain works a little bit different. So you can have individuals working for you uh, in an engineering firm, for example, and they'll just do their work and they'll do it so perfectly because and it's repetitive work. They'll sit down, they'll do it, and they just won't bother you. And that's the great thing about it, that I can see these individuals grow if we give them the opportunity and we let them uh, kind of develop those skills. So one of the things I like to do with kids with autism is find their strength and kind of just make it 
the focus of what we do and kind of skyrocket from there and hope that that's what they end up doing for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I like to say a lot too is um, with autism, a lot of parents will ask, oh, like this child has this, so will this child have that too? Um, no, like each person with autism, every single one is different. Every single one has yep. a different characteristic or a different, uh, just, just with their behaviors even. I've, I've not met two kids who have the exact same behavior and it's tendencies. interesting that's why they call it that's why they call it a spectrum right because yeah. it's so wide and so they've actually taken out asperger's now and kind of widened the spectrum just because it's so all these social uh the social communication piece is what you'll get mostly with asperger's so they've realized that if you kind of uh if we widen it we can diagnose a little bit better so that we don't miss uh, individuals who do need that extra support, uh, which is why I like the new DSM-5's uh, diagnosis of uh, autism. The one thing that they got right. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I'm happy about this one. So. so just to expand on the idea or the concept of the spectrum, I want to know, is there like what defines if you have autism or not? Like, is everybody a little bit on the spectrum? Like what makes somebody like a, a low end on the spectrum versus not autistic at all. Can you give Yeah, more? so I want to, I'll break down exactly what like ASD is based on uh, the old DSM's uh, criterias. So I'll break down the social, the communication and the repetitive behaviors and show you how uh, you can kind of have a low functioning and a high functioning and how we can all fit in that. So uh, first, for the social, some kids will, uh, you know, may have a hard time picking up on other people's cues, like we were mentioning about theory of mind. Uh, they may have a hard time maintaining a conversation. They may have a hard time uh, being uh, around others in general. Uh, now, others could be very, very skilled at that. They just may, may need a little bit of extra prompts to start, and but once they start, it's great. They can have that conversation. They can maintain that friendship. Uh, other people have a hard time communicating. So you'll have one that just cannot physically actually speak. So they'll have other communication methods that we will teach them. So there's Proloquo, uh, which is just a, uh, it's, it's an iPad-based uh, app that they can use to communicate cool. versus uh, PEX, which is a picture exchange. So they'll have a binder, they'll have their pictures and they can communicate that way. Uh, that person may actually still be social, they just couldn't speak. So they can't speak, but they can go to you and they'll, they'll come to you and they'll ask you for things. They'll tell you things because in further like levels of pecs, they can actually tell you, oh, hey, I see this, I see that. So they're actually commenting on things. So that's a possibility uh, that one person can be very high, func uh, like high functioning in, you know, in their social skills, but low in their communication skills. Uh, now, I wouldn't call him high functioning, low functioning because of that, but you can see that the spectrum and how everyone could be so different when it comes to these things, that it's so wide. And that's why they have, like, it's really hard to call someone very low functioning and high functioning because they can have a lot of great skills in one area and have deficits in other areas. So I don't really like to use the word high functioning, low functioning. I know it's very thrown, it's thrown around everywhere in the field. Uh, but when I, when I look at it is it's, it's not okay to say someone is low functioning or someone is high functioning. It's better for us to just say, uh, you know, Johnny is, uh, Johnny has autism and it doesn't matter where he is on the spectrum. All that matters is we're going to build those skills and we're going to find what this individual can use and what they can do with the skills that they have. Yeah, like you have strengths in this area and like these areas need to be developed. Let's use them. Yeah. 
Let's let's make let's make use of them. So uh, now carrying on a little bit about the repetitive behaviors. So repetitive behaviors. Uh, an individual th this could look so different everywhere you you look, right? So, so one individual could have uh, self stimulation. So that could be repetitive behavior. So they're waving their arms, and I know that's what a lot of people will think of when they see autism. Uh, but there's other individuals who will just line up toys. There's other individuals that will repeat a question all the time. It's the same question that they want to. Uh, that they're thinking about, and that could be the repetitive behavior. Uh, there's, it could be a word that they're repeating all the time. It could be echolalia, so they're repeating what they heard in the past. Scripts, those are all repetitive behaviors that individuals can have. And some of them may make them seem quote-unquote low-functioning, and some of them other people won't really pick up on, but it's still a repetitive behavior on mm. its own. So does it really matter? I shake my leg all the time when I'm sitting down. Does that mean I have a repetitive behavior? Does that make me low functioning versus you that doesn't shake their leg? No, it doesn't really make a difference. Let's use that. Let's make a uh, let's make use of it in the right way. That's the way I kind of like to see things. Same. You just really I didn't even know that he felt that way about it, to be honest, because we've never had to discuss um, a lot of people in the field. Well, they each have. I guess, different opinions of how you would diagnose autism, or if you look at a child, um, one behavior therapist might say, oh yeah, he's severely autistic, or he uh, is lower functioning. Um, but when I worked in healthcare, I would receive, I worked with the CCAC, the Community Care Access Center. So that's where I would get all these referrals for behavioral therapy for these kids that were just diagnosed. And the doctors, literally every doctor, I don't think I ever saw a medical referral that didn't say low functioning, severely autistic. And I was always so frustrated because I was like, what does that mean? It could mean so many things. See, it's, it's a good thing to kind of mention when you are like when you see the papers, but the way I would rather do it is kind of just present us the scale. We'll see what the skills are. We'll see where there, there's a lack of skills. And this is why we do a lot of assessments in ABA. This is what I love about the field. We'll assess constantly. And we'll see where the skill deficits are. So no one, we shouldn't really use those terms. And we, th we throw them around so loosely all the time. But it's just not fair for the child. What if that, what if you were, like, what if someone called you that? It's not, it's not fair for anyone to be kind of labeled as such fair. It, it, it's okay. They're, they are on the spectrum. That's fine. That's fair. But kind of calling them low functioning, high functioning, you don't, it doesn't matter. I had a quote-unquote low-functioning boy who eventually started talking and became high-functioning. So what does that tell us? It tells us that it's a skill deficit and we can build that skill. So he was low-functioning and became high-functioning. Wouldn't that mean that he should always be low-functioning because that's what his autism is? No, that's, that's the thing. And that's why throwing those terms around, it's not fair for anyone. I'm really glad we're like talking about this. It leads really well into what I wanted to ask you next, which was like how... How do you refer to autism? How do you, like, I don't want to say how do you label it because everything you have been saying makes me think, well, maybe you shouldn't <laughs> because, yeah, like you, you grow and you change. And as you are building on those skills, what you may have been referred to earlier, it wouldn't be appropriate anymore. So what would be your comment on that? Well, I've been asked actually a few times, um, and you're, you may think this is crazy, but when I'm out with one of my kids, someone will come up to me and say, oh, like, she's so cute, or he's so cute, is he, what's wrong with him? What does he have? And I'll, and I usually... What do you have? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who, like, and it's, it, I don't think that they realize it, and there's been times where I've, I've actually 
taken them aside because I don't I always tell the child hey I'm gonna even if they're nonverbal hey bud like I'm talking about you right now just so that they uh, they know I'm acknowledging that they're there some people forget because the per the child may be nonverbal and you just don't think that oh I'm talking about them right now um, they totally acknowledge it uh, but I, I'll take them aside sometimes a stranger whoever it is and just be like listen you know they recognize that you're there they know what you're saying it's not very nice to talk about another individual like that um, but I typically just say um, they're on the spectrum like he's on the spectrum I, I don't ever I've never said oh he's autistic I don't think that that's overly mm -hmm. it's not wrong I just find it's, pol it's political pol yeah. it's just politically yeah. incorrect but it's I would say kid with autism so he has autism so I'll give you an example I'm bald uh, I'm not that bald guy I'm fatty who is bald right <laughs> fatty with baldness yes fatty with, like, you know what I mean like it doesn't like it's just a characteristic it doesn't really matter so you don't want to say the autistic guy or you wouldn't say the the cancer dude right like it's yeah. not something that you're gonna say uh so it's just the you know Johnny who happens to have autism too it's okay whatever yeah just that's it that's yeah. the way we should kind of think about it okay so there's no like specifications like living with autism or like that sort of thing like there's no like you don't like I know that because from my experience with the uh, distress center they're like living with depression that sort of thing instead of like has depression you're living with like it doesn't well, that's fine too. Those. That's gr that's a great way of saying it. That's how we. With. That's how we refer to it on our website. Actually, is living with autism. Okay. Or, um, because essentially that that's what, what it is. Um, it's just we don't want to label saying, "Oh, they're autistic," or, I mean, yeah. Uh, the, the terminology changes through the years. If we look at even how it started years ago, you know that big R word, and then it went into the handicap we didn't like that anymore and then it, you know what i mean there's, it's there's gonna actually, change it's, it's crazy because there's a lot of there was a journal uh in the past called like the journal of mental retardation and there's a lot of great I articles that word. I, see now we do but back then that was like appropriate. Yeah, yeah that was appropriate like delay because like that's what the word used to originally yeah and it's yeah in yeah. french right yeah. so uh there's actually a lot of articles in like those journals that you have a hard time finding because people are so like against it and they're like oh don't use that word but it was the right term at the time no one was trying to offend anyone so i actually there's a really uh, there's a like a technique that we use in ABA that I was looking for like research on and I couldn't find the article that I wanted because it was in the Journal of Mental Retardation. I had to go through hoops to find it. I'm like, why are we like, I understand that it was not a good term, but are we really going to just erase everything just because we used to use that word? No, we shouldn't. Uh, I eventually found it. It is around, but uh, <laughs> it is it is uh, it is political in a sense. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's wrong. I just think it's uh, like offensive in a way if if we want to but again uh everyone kind of feels differently about everything what is what's offensive to me might not be offensive to you uh i would just try to kind of be as polite as possible and say that kid has you know he has autism That's yeah okay. you want to remain respectful yeah, yeah because he's a human too yeah in general just don't refer to people as retards yes that's i think that's the thank you carte blanche <laughs> appreciate that <laughs> uh so you guys touched upon like when you get a referral from a gp or something like that uh that brings up the question for me like how is autism diagnosed like can a gp even diagnose autism does it come to you guys who like who what so we can't so we can't how, yeah. yeah so we can't diagnose anything um, so what happens is it's detect it could be detected at as early as 18 months. I wouldn't want to get a diagnosis at that early, but it can be. 
Uh, and what would end up happening is you'll get a final, you wouldn't get a final diagnosis until a little bit later. So I've seen kids get a diagnosis at two, two and a half, which technically speaking, they say that around two, you can get a good diagnosis. Uh, it is really early though. So I would kind of wait a little bit because you never know. But what happens is they'll get a developmental screening followed by a comprehensive diagnostic uh, evaluation. So there's a lot of different kinds. So there is the autism diagnostic inter interview and there is uh, the childhood autism rating scale. So these are things that will be done what by a psycho. <laughs> yeah, so these are diagnostic tools that you'll use and a uh, Typically, it'll be done by a psychologist. So they'll sit down, they'll do uh, some, like they'll ask the parents some things, they'll do some uh, skill-based tests and they'll assess it and then they'll rate it out and they'll see if the kid fits on the spectrum according to the scale, they'll go on. Just very similar to what you would do with you know ADHD or uh, any other uh, developmental uh, delay. I'm just thinking it's it's good that you because you guys mentioned that you do constant re-evaluation yeah. of these kids. If I was tested for anything at two, I would have just like a laundry list of yeah. issues. So, so there's a, there's actually very specific things that you want to see. So I, this is what we would tell parents. And Rebecca, you can kind of touch on this as well. But uh, if you notice that your child is uh, not making eye contact, uh, little things like that when they're really when they're really young, you want to kind of keep an eye on it and see what's actually happening. Because there are some cues that tell us this person, uh, you know, may be on the spectrum. And I wouldn't kind of, and I wouldn't, I know families always get scared and they're like, no, 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 this can't be a thing. But they shouldn't be worried because autism isn't a death sentence. It's actually, uh, it, I've seen some of the brightest individuals have autism. If we can get them the support that they need, getting that diagnosis isn't a bad thing. Ontario has a very good helping system for kids with autism. So getting that, giving them that support is actually really, really good. And, and some parents are afraid of the diagnosis, I find. Uh, and they can't really, sometimes they, they don't even admit that their child, like they, right, admit, I guess, yeah. That, yeah. that they're on the spectrum just because... Um, and like stigma, that's the worst yeah. thing, stigma. And it's the worst thing to do because if you don't get that help early on, like you, like right when you get that diagnosis, you want to do everything in your power to get um, help, especially in the early stages uh, when they're developing. Yeah. And then that, like when you, uh, when you mentioned eye contact, that really clicked for me because there are certain like developmental stages that kids should be reaching. And theory of mind is something that we like develop. We start to understand that like we have a mind and like it is not. Yeah, Every, everyone's not the same, like thinking the same thing at all times. They can't see what I'm thinking. Like these yeah. things are, they sound really simple to us right now, but they're complicated concepts, concepts. that when we were kids, we don't really, like kids are very selfish on mm -hmm. their own, right? So we, and we know that. So it's, we kind of don't realize that we used to think that way as adults, but it's a really hard concept. And for kids with autism, that's hard for them to kind of understand even as we start teaching them. So that's something that I always like to program for and, and teaching them different emotions and, and things like this. And with perspective taking. Uh, so we do touch on a lot of that in our social skills classes and stuff where you teach kids emotions and perspectives, how to understand, because they don't understand it really much. And it's a huge discussion-based kind of thing. That's more ABA type yeah. um, approach, which we'll also get into the difference between ABA and IBI moving forward. So, so, so let's kind of touch on, on like the, 
the symptoms that you'll yeah, notice when you're a say, kid, right? What are the sorts of things that you would notice in a in a child or or an infant, I suppose, so, you could even... Yeah, so like you guys were asking, asking earlier about the, the symptoms, Fatty was getting into talking about if you don't... If you notice uh, that your child does not have these things, this is where you'll be like, okay... I need to take take them to the doctors and see what's going on. So if you notice that your child doesn't make eye contact, like he said, um, if you notice that they don't respond to their name um, or to the sound of a familiar voice, like mom's voice, dad's voice, their sibling, um, if they don't follow objects visually or follow um, your gesture when you point at things. Um, another thing is if they don't point or wave goodbye uh, or use other gestures to, co- to communicate. Um, also, if the child doesn't make noises to get your attention um, or initiate or respond to cuddling um, or reach out to be picked up, uh, you'll find that that's also really common with kids that are on the spectrum. Um, also, if they do not imitate your movements or facial expressions, uh, like if you uh, maybe do like a kissy face at them and, oh, look at, like, do what mommy's doing and they they don't understand. Half the time, they may not even look at you to, to copy that uh, facial expression. Um, play with other people or share interest um, and enjoyment in playing with other people. You'll find a lot of the time they're isolate, isolated. So they're playing with their toys by themselves in the corner. Um, or if you notice, um, notice if, if they don't notice or care if they hurt themselves. Um, so... Yeah, just a lot of so yeah. more sensory side of things. So they don't really feel uh, the same pain that we would. They might enjoy something or they might feel too much discomfort uh, because of a certain uh, touch. Like you literally just touch them and it could create a whole uh, tantrum. Little things like that could be a sign that your child has uh, may have autism. Doesn't mean that they do. Uh, it could be actually a sensory concern. And that's why get going to a doctor might uh, help and uh, give us a better picture and understanding of what is happening with uh with your uh, son and daughter yeah those would be the major things i think that you would that you'd want to pick up on um in the early stages if you see your child is lacking in those areas and so your next step is what you go to the doctor and what where do you go from there basically like is it you immediately get into different treatment options what would those be like so you, what i think you'd that... wait a little bit for yeah. that so you want to get the full diagnosis and you want to kind of understand what is happening. So uh, there is a lot of concerns, right? So it could be it, you might need a speech and language pathologist. You might need an occupational therapist. You might need a uh, behavior therapist. Most of the time, you do need a behavior therapist. So here's the here's what I would do first. So we live in Ontario, and in Ontario, we have a very good uh, system. So what I would do... Uh, for individuals who do live in Ontario, I would go to a facility like Erin Oak or Surrey's place where you can begin uh, the, begin getting your son uh, or daughter, uh, you know, kind of assessed to understand what they need. So typically what they'll do is they'll kind of assess their, uh, their communication, their social skills, their uh, behaviors and see what they need. And they'll provide you with a, a few resources and tell you where to go from there. Uh, if you live in another like area where you don't have these services, so what I would do is I would get a consult from an OT, from an SLP, and I would get a 
who are these people? OT. Yeah. So an occupational therapist. So I would get a consult from an occupational therapist, a speech and language pathologist, and a behavior therapist. So I'll tell you a little bit of what every single one will do. Uh, a speech and language pathologist will obviously work on your communication skills, your speech skills, your receptive, uh, your, and your expressive, your intraverbals, all of those skills. Uh, your occupational therapist will uh, look into your uh, more sensory concerns, if there's feeding concerns, uh, sleeping, things like this to kind of understand what is happening with the body. So they'll touch more on the medical side of things uh, from uh, from a different point of view. And the behavior therapist will work on all of the individual's behaviors. So when we say behaviors, uh, anything is a behavior. So anything that a dead man uh, can, can't do is a behavior, <laughs> right? So the dead man test, that's what we would kind of refer that to. Uh, so literally moving, that's a behavior. Uh, Eye contact, that's a behavior. All these things, this is where we come in and we make sure that we build on all those skills. Uh, so that those would be the, st the first couple of steps. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of, here's what I want to warn parents. There's a lot of uh, non-proven therapies out there or uh, techniques that aren't evidence-based. And I would kind of stay clear from those just because they, they could be scams or they could be great. But we don't have evidence that they are great. And before we get that evidence, I would recommend not doing it until there's research to prove that it is effective. So we have research to prove that SLPs, it's great. It's going to be good for kids with autism. OT, it's needed. It's going to be good for kids with autism. Behavior therapy and ABA specifically is actually one of, and it's been researched and shown that it is one of the most effective, if not the most effective uh, way to help kids with autism develop their skills. So that we know, but there's so many others and it's, it's, it's up to you if you want to try them. But I would, you know, as a professional, I would recommend that you kind of do your research, you understand, you see what the studies have shown about this technique before you step in and, and you know, put your, ch uh, your child into this kind of treatment. I actually have a question, if it's okay that I interrupt and, and ask it. Um, so I was listening to... Uh, autism-based podcast on my drive down here preparing to speak with both of you. Um, it's called Moving Autism Forward. And it's basically like a like an interview-based podcast. So they're interviewing people, um, like uh, typically parents um, of children with autism. And something that they kept talking about in every episode was talking about like diet and nutrition. And I was like, what does that, like, where does that fit so in? There, what, what I just didn't things. get it. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot of great things. And I think nutrition in general is good for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but it shouldn't be the one thing that we think about. So uh, gluten-free and casein-free diets, there's been a lot of research on that. So it is beneficial in its own way, but it's also not proven to be very effective. So I'll tell you why it could be effective. So what happens is we know that gluten-free and casein-free diets will actually increase your uh, socialization. So kids with autism have a lack of socialization. So why wouldn't that be effective, right? Gluten is making me non-social. <laughs> Please go on. Yeah, sorry. Like I, I'm a bread lover. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of describe it a little bit. I'm not very, uh, and this is not something that I'm very knowledgeable about. But I I have read some articles, so I can explain it a little bit. Yeah. But I'm sure. And if I'm if I'm wrong, I'm more than happy to admit that in the future. But what happens is that there's a protein uh, that like that is in your body, that when you don't eat gluten and casein, uh, that will synthesize in a specific way that will help you increase your socialization. Wow. So what happens is kids with autism, since they lack socialization, you would expect it to be 
uh, beneficial for them. However, we haven't had research, and it's not because the research isn't uh, effective. It's not that it's showing it's not effective. It's just we haven't been able to control enough to show us that that's the actual reason that their socialized, uh, socialization increased. Because we don't want to take away their therapy, so we would technically have to stop their therapy and see. But that's not ethical. So do we yeah. know it's not the, th is it the therapy or is it the, uh, or is it the, is it the sorry, diet? the diet? Yeah. All right. So that's why I would kind of stay, uh, do it because it is healthy and it is good, but I wouldn't say, okay, my son is going to have more socialization skills. He's going to be more, com like more communication. It's just a good diet to have. Yeah. Like it couldn't hurt. So exactly. why not? But I'm wondering, like, I guess in the future, there's the avenue for, um, uh, studies where there are two sets of children getting the exact same therapy and the only difference is the diet and so that yes would that would be see that would be a good way to really yeah. control yeah. brilliant yeah hey guys when, <laughs> whenever you want to do that research let us know yes. <laughs> yeah we'll just we'll just go into that that's we, act, we see that the thing is it's it's not a hard study to actually do because we do have a lot of kids who Half are of on our kids yeah are on casein free and gluten-free diets uh so that's something that could be done um, I just, I personally, and it, this may have been released since I've last read on this, but I have not been able to find anything uh, on it. But again, the last time I looked into this was maybe a year and a year and a half ago. So studies may have changed that. But thus far, this is what I would uh, say. The I think that the, the, what's interesting is that it touches upon something that I'm really interested in. And it's like being your best best self, like with your nutrition and that sort of thing. So like we know very, very little about how food affects who we are and like how our gut flora affects who we are and that sort of thing. So like it's I like that you guys touched upon that that diet because I'd like that to be a bigger area of research. Yeah. yeah and, and I really agree. I think it's really important that uh it's with every single person, regardless of their, you know, disorder, diagnosis, eating better will give you more focus, will give you more attention. So all these things that kids with autism may have deficits in, it actually, you know, by giving them the best environment and setting them up for success, by giving them good food, making sure that they eat well, uh, is important. However, here's the problem that a lot of parents will run into. Kids with autism may be very selective in what they eat. So now, a lot of our kids may have, uh, you know, may only be eating fruits. That's all they eat. So they're not getting the protein. They're not getting anything that will really help them uh, grow. So this is where the whole diet thing can be a little bit difficult and hiring an OT or a behavior therapist to really help with the eating habits can be, uh, can be important or going to a dietitian and seeing how can we like which minerals and which vitamins are needed for my child and we can kind of give them uh that through other sources so that's important for for families to do and i think humans to do in general just see what you're lacking in and it'll help you a lot with the way you're thinking with the way you're feeling and what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis cool so okay so food is one of the avenues that you could pursue to like assist in the therapy with or in assist in like building upon the strengths of the child but what else is there like what are the other treatment options can you tell us more about it what specifically do you guys do so yeah so the most effective which I'd, I'd like to think is not I wouldn't say most effective out of all of them but behavioral therapy so 
Uh, we use both ABA and IBI approaches. Uh, behavior therapy in general, just so you guys know, it is a treatment that uses reinforcement and punishment as its primary techniques. Um, now, our first option always is to use reinforcement. So uh, that's what we work off of is motivation and reinforcement. And then as a last resort, we go into punishment if needed. Um, so kids with autism do require one-on-one -on -one therapy. Um, we use both ABA and IBI. There is a difference between the two. IBI, intensive behavior intervention, is anywhere from 20 to 40 hours max per week. A lot of these kids are in school for half a day and then they come or they'll be home because we are an in-home company and we'll do four hours of therapy for, with them in the afternoon. Um, yeah, so just to touch on ABA and IBI, ABA and IBI are the same thing. It just, one is more intensive. So it is the same thing. It just the same way of doing things, except one is intensive, and like she said, four hours a week, and that's it. Uh, and I'll, I want to just tell you guys what IBI is, because in the U.S., they'll use a different term. So uh, in the U.S., they'll actually call it EIBI, so Early Intensive Behavioral Intervention, and here we call it uh, Intensive Behavioral Intervention. So again, like, like Rebecca was saying, IBI is just very intensive, so it have more hours, uh, more one-to-one a lot of prompting, a lot of demands, and more work than breaks versus ABA, which is what IBI uses. The approaches are all ABA-based. And uh, ABA, what we'll call here as ABA, is going to be a little bit less intensive, less hours. We'll come in, we'll do some work, uh, we'll work on some social skills, but we'll use still the principles of like behavior analysis. So reinforcement, punishment, prompting, and all these things we'll touch on a little bit more in as we go along. So when we work with the children, we use reinforcement to build all of uh, the skills where they have deficits in. Um, an example of this, so very commonly we use token boards. Uh, so we'll make them like a special token board. Maybe they like princesses, so it's a princess token board. Uh, and then we have their choice board of things that they really like. So it could be Smarties, iPad. iPad is a huge one. Um, let's just say that they're working, you'll, so you'll ask them, okay, what do you want to work for? And you'll have your list of uh, programs that you're working on with a child. It could be motor skills, social, um, playing with toys, things like that. Um, our kids usually have anywhere from 10 to 15 programs. They're all specialized for the individual. Um, and you'll go through each one. So it's nice because the token board, maybe it has five or 10 tokens and they're not just working on one thing. So they're not getting bored. Um, and they have to get their tokens. And then once they get all their tokens, they get their Smarties or two minutes with the iPad. And they really, we find kids work very well when they know that they're working for something. That works really well on me when I'm just doing my own <laughs> Well, work. we do that in general on a daily basis, right? You go to work so you can get paid, right? So yeah. it's essentially what we're teaching them here. Uh, we want to kind of take that and build on it and make sure that it's not just a one-to-one -one or, you know, getting five tokens, then you do it. Eventually, I like to move that into uh, a time base. So you work five minutes, then you get a reward. And eventually, I change that completely and I want to make that uh, self-monitoring. So if I followed all my rules, and I finish my work on my own, I will get that reward. So you want to continue to build that to make sure that they're aware of their skills and be like, hey, Fatty, I actually finished my work now and I did this, I did that, I did this. Can I have my iPad? Can I have my, uh, my Smarties? Can I have my skateboard so I can go outside? Whatever it is that they want, they're motivated for and that's why we use that choice board that Rebecca mentioned is to make sure that they are the ones choosing what they want to work for, right? So 
what is most motivating to that child and that's what we'll use and that's why we use something called a preference assessment so we'll consistent we'll always assess uh, what is highly motivating for the individual and what is you know less motivating so we'll use the highly motivating items for skills that are a little bit harder to teach and skills that are uh, you know, easier to like they're doing really well on. We can we don't need that much motivation for, so we can use a little some of the other items and keep those highly motivating items uh, on the side for us, so that we use them and use uh, you know take advantage of them. We're sneaky that way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this goes back to like psychology one on one with Pavlov's dogs. Like rewards yeah. are the best motivator always like they're the best ways to teach behaviors just across the board mm -hmm. with dogs and humans so and if you think about it um especially in uh you know today's day and age culture everyone something as simple as you're eating healthy so you know how everyone has their cheat day on friday or saturday you're gonna eat really really healthy until that day when you get your cheat day if you know that you ate healthy some people break it and do it anyways but <laughs> we're, we would be more strict with that um so ABA, like I was saying earlier, it is data driven. So we're able to show our results and we're also able to see what's not working. So we graph on a daily basis each thing that we're teaching the child. Uh, they usually get, we use something that's called discrete trial training. There's a million different ways to take data, but this is just the most commonly used one. Um, so you do maybe 10 trials in a whole session and you calculate their um, success. So the percentage of, of how well they did uh, based on their target goal. Uh, and then we graph it at the end and that's where Fatty, the BCBA, will come in, review the data and see, okay, this is working. Uh, they mastered this in three days or they mastered this in a week. Oh, wait, hold on. This is taking maybe a month. We're going we're gonna to change it up and see if we can maybe teach this differently to them. Yeah, so usually what I'll, what I'll do is I'll write like a couple of programs. So I'll write, let's say, 10, 15. Uh, if a kid has like 40 hours, of course, I'll write 30 programs for them, right? Because they have a lot of time. Uh, but uh, on a daily basis, I'm not going to be working one-to-one -one with the kid. Uh, I'm, I, we have therapists who work with them. So I need to see what's happening. So the data that's being taken is to allow us to, uh, one, keep track of everything, know what they know, know how well they're doing on something. And we have... Uh, we want to teach them in a way that is most effective. So one of the things I like to use is errorless teaching. Uh, we don't want to, we want to make sure that the child is not erroring because when you error, that can become the way you always do things. So we want to avoid that. So that's why we use a lot of prompting. Uh, so there's a hierarchy and every kid can have different kinds of prompts. So you can fully prompt them and do it for them. You can partial prompt them. Some kids will need to have a least to most. So, you know, uh, a just, just a gesture. And then if they need it, you'll continue to go up the hierarchy. So a partial prompt or a full prompt or the opposite, depending on their skill level. So it could be a most to least, a full prompt followed by a partial prompt, followed by a gesture. It all depends on uh, the child's needs. So uh, by doing all those things, we're able to make sure that the child is progressing, keeping track of everything and maintaining them. So one of the most important things uh, about uh, ABA is that we want to maintain and generalize everything. So when I say maintain, meaning that that child needs to gain access to that skill that they are using on a regular basis. Because imagine learning something and no one ever reinforces that behavior, right? It's useless. Why would I continue to use it? If I never use it, I'm going to lose it, right? So we always want to give them access to that reinforcement, but how do we keep track of it? We need to know. So that's why having that data allows us to know, have they been gaining access to reinforcement for that skill that they learned? Generalization, on the other hand, we do to make sure that the child knows that they can use that skill with anyone, anywhere, uh, and kind of understand that a green apple is also 
uh, and then red apple are both apples. They're not completely different uh, things. So by teaching them all these things, they're able to generalize and maintain all the skills uh, that, they, that we have been working on. One of the things that uh, are really important is the seven dimensions of ABA. And then there's an article uh, that is really important. That's Bear, Wolf, and Risley in 1968. And this is a very seminal uh, study that kind of outlines what ABA really is and what we should be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So the seven dimensions are applied, behavioral, analytic, uh, generality, effective, conceptually systematic, and technological. If we understand that, and this is something that I, if anyone's interesting in, interested in understanding what ABA really is, I would really recommend reading this article. Uh, so I'll kind of just briefly mention what they are. So applied is, you know, targets, target behaviors are all socially significant and we're not really going to work on anything that is uh, for our benefit. Uh, for me personally, it's something that's going to benefit them. Uh, so we'll work on target behaviors uh, like if, like saying hello, goodbye, uh, things like that. That's important for the child because it starts a conversation, right? But I wouldn't want to work on a skill that is because of what I feel that's annoying. I don't want him to do that anymore. So it needs to be socially significant uh, to that specific person and improves their life. Uh, now, behavioral is anything that is directly observable uh, and measurable. That's the only behaviors that we will use. Uh, analytic is the uh, systematic manipulation of the environment, uh, environmental variables, and those are used to kind of understand the functional relationship between the environment and the behavior. Uh, generality is the uh, the behaviors, uh, the behavior changes that maintain, like I said before, uh, and transfer in other settings, situations across people and across behaviors and anything like that. Uh, effective is we want to see some clinically significant changes in the behavior, uh, not just through uh, statistical changes, uh, but we can actually see the change in the individual's uh, behaviors. We want to be able to notice them. So st stats can say one thing, but if we, he's not actually using the skills and we can't see that, has it really been effective? And that's something that we always want to keep in mind when we're working with our kids. Uh, conceptually systematic is the behavioral procedures and explanations are tied to the basic principles of behavioral analysis. Uh, and technological is anyone can kind of replicate uh, the procedures that we're using. So they need to be written in a very simple way so that anyone can just pick it up. Anyone. And I'm saying mom, dad, uh, teacher, they just look at it and they're like, oh, okay, that's what I have to do. So we need to, uh, there's a lot of technical terms that we can use, but when we write a program, we need to be careful with that to make sure that anyone can actually use those, uh, those techniques. Uh, but yeah, tech, that, those are the, that's just a brief summary of what the seven dimensions of ABA is, uh, are, but if you're interested, Bear, Wolf, Risley, 1968, that is the most important article for ABA. Is there a mnemonic for the seven? <laughs> yes, uh, get a cab. Get a cab. Perfect. And then that would be. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah, so that's how I remember them for my exam. Get a cab, and I kind of just went through them, but you kind of get to know them as, as if you go. If you're working in the field, you just do it on a regular basis, anyways, right? Yeah. We also clearly have um, similar learning styles. If you're like, yes, of course there's a mnemonic because <laughs> I need those too. <laughs> Yes. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of what ABA really is. Do you guys have any questions to like kind of specifically pinpoint anything that I didn't 
touch on? So I actually have a question uh, just a little bit to drill in a little bit about ABA and like you guys use a lot of reward based actions. What happens when um, rewards fail or rewards aren't motivation enough or whatever, or if you're getting behaviors that are detrimental to the child? Like, what do you do then? So first things first, we want to try all reinforcement strategies. We are, so as a board certified behavior analyst, uh, we have an ethical book that tells us do not uh, use punishment unless it is uh, like needed and you've tried every reinforcement strategy available for that specific behavior. Now, uh, there is situations where punishment is needed and I have used them. So in my earlier in my, like my career, uh, I worked with individuals who were highly aggressive to the point where they were in hospitals and they couldn't leave the hospital due to their behaviors. All reinforcement strategies had been used to this point, but nothing is working. So punishment was used in this situation. So uh, what I would say is there is a place and time for it and we need to know when it is. Uh, so I'll give you an example. A young boy who is aggressing to the point where, or self-injuring himself to the point where he is bleeding from his head. He's hitting his head against the wall and none of your reinforcement strategies are working. What do you do? You need to use a response block. Response block is a punishment procedure. Uh, and this is a time that you would want to use that. It wouldn't be your first choice. You would use some uh, differential reinforcement strategies. You would use uh, non-contingent uh, non reinforcement. You may use functional communication. There's a lot of things that you would want to try first. And we can touch on all those things as we go. Uh, but there are strategies that you can use to avoid these things. Uh, but at one point, uh, if, if, there, if there's nothing working, punishment is the, is the way to go. And we have to be careful. When we have punishment in place, we need to have a reinforcement strategy and a replacement behavior in place. Because what we know about punishment is uh, punishment doesn't have a long-lasting effect. And it can actually backfire. So the behavior can become worse. And it, if not well uh, written out and you don't have a transition plan, it can it can end up being really bad. So this is why having a qualified BCBA who has used behave, uh, like punishment in the past and has studied it and has had supervision in punishment is really important before you use it. And this is what I would uh, recommend for any uh, family who has exhausted all uh, options and punishment is the last resort. Make sure that the BCBA on staff knows what they're doing and they have a reinforcement strategy in place, they have a replacement behavior so that punishment isn't the only thing being used. So you mentioned response block. I'm wondering what does that look like? Like, so this boy is hitting his head against the wall. I used to volunteer at a school for children with special needs, like the ones that we can't have at, reg um, like can't integrate into regular schools. Yep. And they had a room, like a white padded room. Was that I'm not archaic? A, I'm not a, no, I'm not a fan <laughs> of that. Uh, these secluded rooms are, uh, they're used horribly, in, especially in schools. So what happens is, uh, say that the function of the behavior is escape and you put him in that room, you just reinforce that behavior. So he's gonna do, do it every single time. And at schools, at times, and other camps, and other in, like, areas, they don't do that assessment to know what the function of the behavior is. And that's the first thing we wanna do with any uh, interfering behavior. Now, I, one thing that I wanna mention is I would never call a behavior problematic because no behavior is problematic. A behavior is interfering with their life. Nothing is bad, nothing is good. It's just interfering. So I wouldn't say, that's a good behavior. No, that's a useful behavior. 
and that's an interfering behavior. So that's really important that we use that kind of language and share that with parents to make sure that they understand and they don't, you know, say my kid's a bad kid. No kid is a bad kid. They just have some interfering behaviors with their life and we need to fix that. Uh, but back to what I was saying, uh, the, uh, the padded room, it's used wrong. So if we don't do that assessment, when we don't know, we can actually uh, increase that behavior because instead of, uh, instead of it being a punishment, it's actually a reinforcer. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I would want to do for a response block, to answer your actual question, <laughs> uh, is, for example, in this situation, he's hitting his head. You can do two things. You can kind of... Uh, you know, push him back. That's, that would be a response block, but obviously gently, you're not going to hurt him. Uh, or you can put a pillow there. That would still be a response block uh, to kind of protect his head. Uh, so these are kind of one way of doing it. Another response block could be uh, if an individual is uh, taking, picking his arm up and he's biting the, his palm. Uh, I've seen that a lot. Like there was a boy who, well, at that school specifically, there was a boy who was like just eating his wrist. Yeah. And I, oh, it was so gut-wrenching. Like, so a response so block would be putting his hand down and just kind of blocking it. So this is a punishment because he's trying, like, you are stopping him from doing something. Uh, you are adding something to decrease the behavior. So it's a positive punishment. So in this situation, technically, that should be the last resort. But I have a little bit of a different way of looking at things. Uh, in a situation like this, yes, you can uh, use all reinforcement strategies, but if that kid is bleeding to the and he's hurting himself, what are you going to do? You're going to allow him to do that and let your your reinforcement strategies decrease it? No, you want to protect him. My biggest concern is the child's safety. If the child is hurting himself, a response block will be put into place to make sure that the child is protected. And regardless, if if of course I would never implement this without parent consent. You always want to make sure that parents are approving of this, but. And we know that the risk, that there's risks and there's benefits to everything. So ex I would want to explain that to, I would want to explain that to the families that, you know, uh, it could increase the behavior for a little bit. Uh, and it could, it could cause the behavior to, you know, increase in magnitude and length and things like this, just because they're going to try new things to, you know, get to, uh, the, you know, get the final result, which is the function of the behavior. So it could be escape. It could be sensory, right? It could be that they need that feeling uh, and we're blocking it. So they might now, uh, you know, try new things. And I got to explain that to the parents and show them how we're going to have a plan around that to make sure that it is well done. And this is why I say a qualified good BCBA who understands how to use punishment procedure should be the one overseeing something like this rather than one who has never used it and is using it as last resort. And just to be clear, some people may refer to those, to what Fatty's talking about as restraints. Um, in my interview process, when I'm talking with a behavioral therapist, I usually, I use that exact scenario uh, just to see how they would respond. And the minute the word restraint comes up, they're immediately like, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. And then that's where you kind of have to go in and let them know how crucial it is that the child is safe. Um, and, and like he said with the example with the pillow, putting the pillow underneath the head, that's the safest way that you could really restrain the, the child in order to, to keep them safe. Um, another thing though is you're explaining that room in the schools. A lot of the schools may have these materials to help assist in children with behavioral uh, needs or behavioral deficits, um, but they're not always, they don't get the... 
the, the best training that they could get in order to better uh, support these individuals. So I think a huge thing that a good development would be bringing in ABA, extensive ABA training into, uh, you know, the educational education system in terms of making sure that your teachers and your EAs, although, like I said, I, I went to school to be an EA and I was never really taught the maybe basics of behavior, but um, it would be very useful for my job if I was trained um, in a kind of learning about the ABA perspective and understanding behaviors the way that we do as behavioral analysts and behavioral therapists. So um, that's fascinating. And I'm really glad or glad. um, I think it's interesting the way that you keep bringing up, like, I need to explain this to the parent, or this is what I'm trying to communicate to the parent, or this is what I'm trying to communicate to the, the therapist and those sorts of things. So that brings up a question for me is like, um, from the parent side, like we've talked a ton about what it's like for a child or what it's like for, for you when you're doing your work, but what is it like for the other people in that child's community, um, like their parents, their siblings, that sort of thing? Like, is there support for them? Is there work that you do with them directly? Like, what does that look like? So a huge thing um, that I notice is a, when you start working with a family, you'll see some parents that are very engaged with their child that seem to know their child like the back of their hand, and they'll give you some tips. But then when you come in, it's kind of like, oh, I didn't even realize that this would work as well. So we work with the family to give them ideas or I guess a better approach when dealing with certain behaviors or teaching new things, getting them to eat specific foods. Um, So we do offer that support. We work very closely with the parents. Everything we do is based off of the, uh, you know, the parents' goals as well for their child, what they'd like to see, and then what we would also like to see for that child's development. Um, But... You do also have some some families that, you know, they're going through caregiver burnout because they're just, it, you know, maybe their house is destroyed um, from those aggressive behaviors uh, or they're just mentally very drained because um, they've been dealing with it maybe for six years, seven years. And it's a lot of them too have other kids. So you have to teach your other children how to deal with Uh, their sibling or how to communicate but a huge thing that I've noticed is as time goes by I've, I've been with a lot of families for anywhere from a year to four years and I've seen the parents growth with the with getting to know their child and learning how to uh I guess learning more about their child and how to um work with them teach them talk to them communicate uh it's actually really interesting to see their transition from when you start out to I guess, a few years down the line as they get to know their child. Yeah, and and one of the other things I I see is that uh, kind of being okay with what is happening with their child, that's another challenge that I've seen. Um, And I always like to tell parents, there's nothing wrong with having a diagnosis of autism. Um, Sometimes it can actually be a blessing. I, I find that kids with autism are the little angels in this world, so they don't really see uh, the thing, the way we do. So they're not really picking up on all the, you know, the evils of the world and all these things, which is kind of a blessing in disguise if you really think about it. I always remind parents that you're going to have some, uh, that you're going to have some, like there's going to be some success and there's going to be some things that are hard, but that's not a bad thing. Every person is, uh, every person is skilled at one thing and not skilled at another. And that's okay. I'm not good at math at all. 
your son might be amazing at math and he might, you know, surpass me in all of that. And that's great. That's what you should look at. We should find the great skills that they have. And, you, and I remind them that uh, just because your son has autism doesn't mean that they're not going to be successful in their life. They can be successful. Some of the greatest minds in the world in our history have actually had autism without really having that diagnosis because we didn't know what autism was. So it's not a it's not a death sentence. It could be a blessing, and it, there's a lot of great things that can come out. And that's one of the challenges that I see a lot of parents not really grasping until they start seeing, oh my God, my child started reading at the age of two, and he is you know doing math. He knows his numbers better than anyone. These are skills that you're seeing, but all the deficits and all the things that they don't have. That's, these are the things that we see as a parent. So look at, the, look at the positive, look at the good things and see that we can actually make you know, use and benefit of, uh, of those skills that they actually have. Yeah, and I think part of that would be for the parent, like realizing that autism isn't a death sentence. Like it doesn't mean that your child isn't going to be a productive member of society, especially mm -hmm. when they're doing like when they have maladaptive behaviors, like hitting their head against the wall. Like if they figure out another way to give themselves that sensory input, like or even biting their wrist, they could figure out that like putting pressure on your wrist instead, like works. So yeah, there's other there's so many ways that you can do it, right? Yeah, and having the parents know that is really important. Cool. I think also what you were saying that was like a, a eye opening for me um, that there's a goal in all of those behaviors. And, you know, I think especially some if it's um, what did you say? Maladaptive. Um, if it's if it's really extreme like that, you might not realize, oh, there's a goal there or that like there there was some direction in them wanting to do that or, or, or driving them to do that. I think that um, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm wondering, would you be willing to share any success stories uh, from that that you've gone through? If it, like, it's at probably all? the best yeah. part of the job <laughs> yeah. is sharing the success stories. Uh, extra points if you make us cry. Oh, <laughs> oh, well, that, that's oh, hard. That's... Cry? Uh, hmm. Make you cry? Okay, so you don't have to I'm gonna, make I'm gonna, us I'm cry. Gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push cry. for it. Uh, okay, so I when I first act, this is one of the first cases I've ever worked with. Uh, and he was a very, very aggressive individual in a hospital and couldn't, he would, you know, aggress towards other, anytime they place a demand, uh, he would, uh, like you mentioned before, you saw an individual who had like so many scars on his arms, just like that, uh, just pretty much eating his arm alive. Uh, and he would bite other people the way he would with his arms. Other people would be bleeding, scalp individuals, things like this. And, uh, for him, we went in and we did some very intensive behavior therapy and a year and a half later uh he had 24-hour care just so that you guys are aware uh about a year later he was able to you know uh get up go to the washer himself shower him up uh, you know help shower himself assist with getting his food making his food things that he would have never done before but that's a success story of that kind of individual and I've had some That's leaps and bounds though. Wow. In a year and a half. There was a lot of, you know, amazing work done by, uh, by the, by the therapists and also, uh, cause he like lived in a group home and in the hospital, there was a lot of support all around, which is what's really needed that every single person buys in to what you're doing. And that's when you start getting success. So this is what I actually, what I tell families if we're, cause this is a different case where it's in a group home and things like this. But when you're with a family, if we all work together as a team, rather than, you know, fighting about, you know, let's work on this, let's work on that. No, I want to work on this. If we work as a team, we're going to be very successful because we're all going to buy in and do the same thing for him or her. And, uh, 
we'll get some really good results. So that's one success story. There's there's a few other styles of, but Rebecca, why don't you share one? I'm going to share my first ever client in ABA, doing ABA therapy, just because it was like the, I think this, this child is what made me, he basically, he's a reason why I, I pursued ABA therapy, just because he was just like my little protege. I loved him so much. Still do. Uh, but basically my first ever client, I was just finished. I think I was at the end of being uh, like my schooling. Um, so I was in my pract- my practicum. He was, he had gone through like five or six therapists at least in the last like few months. So each therapist kept leaving his team and uh, he was six years old. He was very behavioral. So he, he would aggress towards others. He would flip tables. Anyway, so I started with him. Also a huge part of this is he could not verbalize to, to you uh, what he wanted. Um, and we started to teach him. He started on his PEX book, and he was such a brilliant boy. He went through that PEX, the picture communication system that was fat, that Fadi was talking about earlier, in a matter of, I, I want to say, two months. And then he went into the Proloquo system, where he became so fluent in his Proloquo. So he was getting, uh, I want to say, 15 to 20 hours a week of therapy. Uh, parents were awesome. Always, always brought him to therapy. Never had a day off. And he was, you know, he had his, his days, but I was with him for, I was with him for a year, but within six months, he was sitting on my lap. He was socializing with others. He was super compliant, no behaviors with like aggressing towards others, uh, unless it was something very, you know, that you could tell really upset him. That any um, kid would actually do. Like, any kid any, would react to, you know, like another child do, you know, he was playing with other kids and he never did that. He would, he was such, he was, he was very isolated and he was, you could tell he was frustrated because he just didn't know how to get what he wanted across to you. Um, so even, even when I left that place, the mom was like, where can we come with you? <laughs> but of course it doesn't work that way, but we do still keep in touch. And he is now seven years old. He is doing amazing in school. He still does therapy. He socializes. He does parallel, like he, he is, he's really good at parallel play. He initiates play with other kids and he is great across any therapist. So you could go up to him right now and you could, you could ask him for a high five or a hug and he would do that. Whereas when we started with him, there was like no tolerance for that at all. So he's come a really, really long way. That sounds super rewarding and like kind of there's room for success with everybody that you work with. Are there any children that you don't see success with or like that it doesn't go anywhere? So when you don't, so here's a lot of times when you don't see success, it could be because of a lot of things. It could be poor programming and it could be just lack of pairing. So one of the first things that I like to make sure, uh, because we know this, not everyone clicks with everyone. You can just be really good friends with someone and you, you just don't you know, want to be around that other person. And kids with autism are the same thing, right? If they don't, you know, pair well with you, they might not respond well to you. So lack of success could be due to that. It could be also due to lack of motivation. We're not motivating them well enough. And these are all things that we need to kind of look into uh, to make sure that we can get that success because any child is able to be successful. It's just a matter of we need to figure out what is happening. And that's where the data comes in. Like we were saying, when we have all that data, we have revision criteria. We have criteria for us to kind of say, okay, this is not working. We've had, you know, you know, five sessions now. He's still at 0%. Why are we, what are we doing? Why has there been a month of no success? What is happening? He hasn't increased any of the skills. So from there, we can potentially change the therapist and repair, or we can say, hey, uh, why don't we take the next week and actually just play? 
pause the therapy for a second. Let's repair. Let's build that relationship again. Let's make sure that you guys are well paired because sometimes that relationship can, you know, go sideways. Or a huge thing is is parents not following through with what yeah. we are teaching them. And it's like they're going backwards. So the most the most common thing is that we teach them about reinforcement, motivation, things like that. And we teach them to not reinforce these undesirable behaviors. And when we're not there, it happens. And we can see that in the, our first five minutes of working with the child in how they are behaving with us. So yeah, it, it, it's really important that we kind of look at everything before we kind of make a final decision. Okay, this is not working. And it's not a bad thing to say, okay, you know what? It may not be working out here and recommend to the parents say, there's another, there's another organization that might, might have what you're looking for. And it's essentially what I, what I like to do and, uh, is kind of run myself out of a job. Uh, so my goal <laughs> is to kind of, you know, have the client discharge as early you as possible. You don't need me anymore. Yes, yeah. that's the goal. Yeah. So if we tell them that there's somewhere else that can help them better, that's not a bad thing. Yes, it's losing, you know, a client for us business-wise, but it's not a, what it's about. It's about making sure that that child has a good life. And if we can't provide that to them, we just can't. So here's another organization that has, you know, the resources needed for your specific child. Like we primarily offer in-home therapy, but that's not appropriate for all kids. They might need to be you know, center. So, exactly. And this is where we would tell them, like, hey, listen, I don't think this is the right place for you. I would rather you go in this environment. And, uh, you know, I'll tell, let them know that I know of this place. I know of that place that might be a really good fit for your uh, for your son or daughter. Um, and then just one more quick question. So is it like you help the child for a year, a year and a half, and then they're they're great, they're doing well. Like, how do you, when do you determine when to discontinue therapy? Are um, people living with autism destined to always have to just keep coming back to like behavioral therapy? So there's always, there's always behavior therapy involved because there's always behaviors that come up. But the IBI side of things, uh, you discharge them when you get them to the point where they're able to self-monitor and they're able to get to uh, understand what they are doing. And, uh, and one, tolerate other people around them, tolerate uh, the demands of others, and uh, have enough skill to do well in the school environment. So my goal is to get them uh, to go and be in a general education program and, you know, grow just like the other kids. And until we get them to that point, they typically will have some, thort, uh, some sort of uh, one-to-one, like, IBI. Uh, and other kids may... Uh, may need it for a little bit longer. Some kids may get just ABA style of things, get some social skills, uh, some uh, understanding, some emotional regulation, uh, things like that. So there is a continual, a continuous need for it, uh, but it not, might not be as intensive. It might be once a week. It might be uh, just to come and kind of check in to see how everything's going that month. Uh, parent training, there is a need for things like that because behaviors do come up. So some families might go a year or two without having any therapy. And then they might realize, okay, there's a new behavior that we've reinforced. We don't know what to do. Uh, so they might call a behavior therapist, just a quick consult, uh, you know, supervise for a couple of maybe six months, seven months, get the behavior under control, and then behavior therapist is on their way. So there is a place for it. Uh, it just depends on the child and depends on the behaviors that do occur. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for... for talking talking to us about all of this um it's been wonderful to learn more um you know about autism in general but to um connect with with you running an organization that really like tries to make a difference in this aspect of 
the world. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, I think we will be sharing in the show notes uh, all sorts of links to the articles that you mentioned, also to your website, to you know anything anything actually that you think would be helpful that you'd like us to share, we can put in the show notes for, for listeners to check out. Um, and uh, otherwise, listeners, if you have questions, if anything came up that you want to ask us, that you want to ask Fatty or Rebecca, um, email us. You can always reach us at who knew we didn't at gmail.com. We're also available on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere. Who knew we didn't everywhere. Uh, hashtag WKWD. Uh, let us know. And otherwise, stay tuned for our next episode where we have more interviews uh, and more information coming to you uh, straight from I was going to say the horse's mouth, but it's maybe not the <laughs> straight from a professional's mouth. Uh, <laughs> so thanks everyone for tuning in and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.